On this episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to continue our discussion on development of personality. On last week's episode, we discussed existentialism and how it saw the development of personality and how it was concerned with topics like death, life, and how do you live a life that has purpose, a life that has meaning. And so today we're going to move into person-centered therapy. Now, if you've ever sought out therapy, you might have come to Psychology Today, which is a platform where a lot of therapists have their bios, what their cost is for their sessions, do they take or do not take insurance. A lot of folks have pictures of themselves. Some folks even have videos. But one thing you'll always notice on Psychology Today is there's like this side section that you can scroll through that talks about the type of therapies that they do and kind of what their skill set is. What topics, what mental health concerns do they have knowledge, training, experience in addressing? More often than not, when perusing that section, you will see person-centered therapy present. And so today we're going to talk about what person-centered therapy is and kind of how they saw the development of personality. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to isolated, but not alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Rains is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. Last week we talked about existentialism, and this week we're talking about person-centered therapy. I've always found person-centered therapy to be interesting, and I've also found it to be something that can blend in with a lot of other types of therapy. Oftentimes, people claim to be person-centered and might be utilizing some of the techniques developed by Carl Rogers, but are not necessarily holistically person-centered. So I'm going to dive into a little bit of what I mean by that. So first off, let's just talk about what is person-centered therapy. Person-centered therapy is known as Rogerian therapy and comes from the mind of Carl Rogers. Some folks also call it client-based therapy. And this therapy employs a non-authoritative approach and allows clients to take more of a lead in the therapy session. And during that process, not only do they learn about themselves, but they develop their own solutions. As I said previously, it was developed by the work or originated from the work of American psychologist Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers believed that everybody was unique and therefore everyone has their own view of the world, their own perception, and they have their own ability to manage it. And that ability should be trusted, should be accepted versus the alternative, which there's a one size fits all and we don't have the ability to manage things ourselves and therefore need some type of professional to come in and to tell us what we need, to tell us what the world is about, and then to fix us. This therapy is non-directive. What that means is the therapist follows the client's lead and not direct discussion. And when this notion came out, it kind of flipped the world of therapy upside down. So we had this understanding of psychoanalytic, more of a medical model, where people saw doctors 
who were professionals, who knew what they were talking about, who looked for what was wrong with you, made a diagnosis, and then based on that diagnosis, provided treatment. And it was very therapist-driven. It was very interventionist. The therapist, the counselor, the medical doctor, they were the professional, and they healed you by diagnosing some type of disease. And I know this therapy can be difficult, for example, for people like me who practice experiential therapy, meaning that experiential therapy in its classic form leans more towards an interventionist type mentality versus a solution-focused mentality. But with that being said, there's lots of things from this therapy that can be utilized and be helpful. And it's a good reminder that you can go too far down that spectrum of therapists being in control, therapists being the most important person in the room, the therapist being the professional, and miss out on everything that might have come from the client developing their own solutions. Because in the end, you can direct people, but unless they come to that place and are able to mitigate their own consequences from the choices they choose to make versus someone else telling them what choices to make. We want to avoid going down a path where we don't allow that type of healing to happen versus the flip side of that where you go to a medical doctor who says, I've looked at the x-ray, your bone is broken, therefore we need to set this bone and you need to do what I say in order for it to heal. So during this type of therapy, the therapist acts as a compassionate facilitator. They listen without judgment and they acknowledge the client's experience. The therapist is there to encourage and support and they do very little interrupting or interfering with the process of self-discovery. And it really relies on three main components. The first one, which you might have heard or might have seen when doing therapy yourself or contacting a therapist, is unconditional positive regard, which means a therapist is empathetic and non-judgmental. They accept the client's words, convey feelings of understanding, trust, and confidence that encourages and empowers a client to feel valued and to make choices on their own, and to be able to accept the consequences of those choices. I always inform clients that they are responsible for the choices that they make. They are responsible for the positive results of their choices, and they're responsible for the consequences of their choices. Part of marriage and family therapy's code of ethics actually has a section when talking to couples, their marital status is their responsibility. The alternative to that is because I had put myself in a place of authority as the professional and told them to do something. The credit falls upon me when things are going well. And when things are not going well, the blame falls on me as well. It removes that responsibility of the individual. An individual that this therapy says need a stronger sense of self-confidence, of identity, of authenticity and success, and trust in their own decisions. The next component of this therapy is empathetic understanding, which means the therapy tries to understand and accept the client's thoughts and feelings. And this is done so in a way to help reshape the client's sense of their experiences. I was reading a book one time for youth nonprofit work, and this book talked about sometimes providing positive feedback, maybe the only feedback that's positive that this young person has ever heard. And when you think about that and think about times in your own life when you have received harsh 
criticism from a person in power or a person who has authority over you versus statements that build us up, that bring us up, that are positive. My grandpa used to have a saying, he always said, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. <laughs> and yet it's hard to live by that for most folks, especially with the people they care about, right? Because you see somebody doing something that you know might harm them, especially in the parent-child relationship, right? Our desire is to jump in there and protect them, right? To keep them from doing what we ourselves did that was a mistake for us versus allowing them to experience that and then being there with them in that moment, encouraging a sense of trust and confidence in their own decisions. We jump in and try to caretake and protect and keep them from those experiences. Oftentimes, it's much easier to be harsh and to be critical and to lay burdens upon people, which then leads to performance-driven lives where performance is the most important thing to us. Not the end result, not the process, but our performance. In order to be loved, in order to be desired, in order to be accepted, I have to work harder. I have to be better. And therefore, I get stuck in the cycle of being better for better sake. And I burn out. Last thing that this therapy really relies upon is congruence or genuineness, which means the therapist carries like no feeling of superiority or authority, nor do they give that off. But instead, they try to present a true and accessible person, somebody who's honest and transparent, who's real. And this is very difficult. And so when you are training to be a counselor or a therapist, they do a lot of work with helping you to be honest and authentic in the session. Because oftentimes when you are in a power dynamic that is unequal like that, our natural tendency is to go to that professional mode, to put on that cloak of I'm better than you, I have something that you don't have in order to protect ourselves. And so you do a lot of work when becoming a therapist or a counselor to not do that, to avoid that coping mechanism, to avoid that safety blanket where you can say, hey, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> even if it's in the middle of the session, and own that maybe you should have gone beforehand if you have to, instead of sitting there and making an excuse that you got to go out and you know, get something for the client, which sounds silly, but I've actually heard therapists talk about that in trainings, that the shame of having to go to the bathroom, a normal human function, caused them to lie to their client instead of just being honest with them and say, hey, I've got to go to the bathroom. Just like if a client said, hey, I had to go to the bathroom, there it is, <laughs> you know? But that's what I'm talking about, right? Realness. This gets really interesting when therapists have physical attractions to their clients. Because part of what that is is to own that, especially if it's causing issues and you can no longer work with that client. I've never had that experience personally, but I have heard of people who have, and it's a very uncomfortable place to be in. But with this type of therapy, it allows you, because of that unconditional positive regard, because of that empathetic understanding, to be honest, open, and real with your client. Because you're not better than them. You're not better than them. You're just somebody who is coming in that has a different perspective than they do that can join them and allow that safety for them to heal themselves. When it comes to personality development, Rogers believed that people had the ability to grow and develop in constructive ways. They had the ability to actualize. They had the ability to attempt to maintain and enhance themselves. Some of the conditions that he felt were important in that was what he called contact, vulnerability and incongruence, empathy, unconditional positive regard, congruence, 
and perception and communication. And oftentimes we hear congruence and incongruence a lot and mental health. Those are huge buzzwords right now. And they're terms that are shared across the board with many different types of therapies. And oftentimes it's just easy to understand when we think of congruence and incongruence is things are lining up where things are not lining up. So for example, if you are telling a very sad story with a smile on your face, there's incongruency there because a sad story should also have a sad physical representation. Congruence then would be, I'm telling a sad story, there's tears coming down my eyes and my face is turned downward into a frown. But congruency goes much deeper than that because it's not necessarily about our feelings versus our body language. It can be all across the board. Thoughts can be incongruent. Our body language can be congruent and congruent, depending on how you're defining what it means to be congruent and incongruent versus what we're defining our soul or core as, our self. So there's all kinds of ins and outs about congruency and incongruency, depending on what type of therapy you're practicing, what type of training you've had. We can kind of go all over the place. Those are very common terms. They also believe that self was developed through conditions of worth. When a person accepts part of their experience to the extent of their relational climate. Because a person has self, this leads to the possibility of incongruence. And that's kind of what I meant there. Because you have self, you can be doing things, behaviors. You can be thinking things, thoughts. You can be feeling things, feelings that seem to go against self. And that can be a very complex topic. One way to think about this would be, our ideal self might not be consistent with what actually happens in our life and our experiences. There may be a difference between what we see ourselves as and what's actually happening. There's a very famous meme involving Homer Simpson from The Simpsons, right? And he's looking in the mirror, and from your perception, you know, he has his beer gut, right? And he looks semi-unhealthy. But in his visual in the mirror, he's all masculine and ripped and buff and looks really healthy and virulent. And that's kind of the difference between our ideal self and our self-image. So incongruency would be then self-image is different to the ideal self. There may be a little overlap, but not a lot. And because of this, self-actualization is hard or difficult. Congruency is is when self-image is similar to ideal self. There's more overlap and a person can self-actualize easier. When it came to Carl Rogers' view of human nature, he believed that everybody had the ability to grow and develop constructively. He felt that everybody sought to maintain and enhance themselves and that they were interdependent. He believed that people were self-organizing, they were non-linear, emergent, and had phase transitions. And these are all things that become very important as we consider the totality of a person especially with ideas of congruency and incongruency, our self-image versus our ideal self. And I know some of these things are very complex. Just understand this theory was created in order to help people to self-actualize versus putting yourself in a position where you do that work for them. You give them an ideal versus helping their self-image and their idealized image be more in sync, more congruent. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. I know this is more of a complex theory, and I know that it's something that a lot of therapists, at least therapists that are practicing today, have a mixture of, meaning that they are considering most of the time at least aspects of this therapy in the therapy session, specifically unconditional positive regard. 
empathy. These are tools that they're bringing in, even if they may be more interventionist or psychodynamic. They're still considering these things. And there are people who are still classically trained Rogerian therapists who practice this very differently than folks who utilize some of the aspects of it in their therapy practice. Again, thanks for tuning in. Remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health. And we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated. And maybe you are, but you're not alone.